This is part three of a three-part series wrapping up the book of Hebrews. It is called Christ Our Love, and it is broken down into three parts that took us through this chapter. The first was the love of the brethren. The second was the love of the truth. And today it's called Love the Law. Now at this moment, many of you perhaps awakened, jostled back to attention from the doldrums of the previous night's festivities that may still be lingering with you slightly this morning. And you said, wait a minute, did I hear that correctly? Love the law? Did you say law? Surely you don't mean law. Surely you mean gospel. Surely you mean grace. And I have to tell you that if that was your initial response, it is probably the result of a hangover. No, not the one you're thinking of but the hangover from a tradition that started back in the 1800s that drew a very fine distinction between the Old Testament and the New. An actual literal declaration that a separation existed between law and grace, that you could carve the Bible up into chunks, and you could say that one Thing was true in one time, and then an entirely different thing is true in another, and the two are not interrelated. Because maybe you are still have this residual thinking that law belongs to the Jews, or that law belongs to the Old Testament, or that law is connected to wrath, and that Jesus came to deliver us from that, to obliterate the law, and to never again speak of it. And if that is the case for you this morning, you have been misled. You have been deeply and terribly misled. And while the intentions of those who led you there may have been good, I'm afraid the consequence has been very bad. And it has made us anemic in our appreciation for the reality that God is a holy judge and brings forth a holy and good law and demands absolute obedience to that law, and will in the end judge according to works. And yet, also at the same time, quickly clarifying that the only person whose works will ultimately be judged will be the perfect works of Christ that were given to you at salvation. But far be it from us to write off the notion that God's law, the precious, beautiful, ordained law of God, as read to you earlier from Psalm 19, would be cast aside. Just in case it it didn't quite stick with you, go back into the book of Psalms. Remember, this is the inspired hymnal of the Jewish people. And let me read again, just to reiterate the section that was read to you earlier regarding the glory of this law. It comes in verse 7 of Psalm 19, and it goes down through verse 11. Psalm 19, 7 to 11, the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Brothers and sisters, it would be pastoral malpractice for me to deprive you of something that is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, to deprive you of something that will revive your soul, make you wise, rejoice your heart, open your eyes, cause you to endure forever and be entirely righteous because you understand that God's law has not changed, never has, never will. Furthermore, it would be pastoral malpractice for me to somehow create a light version of this, like a diet version, like a non-alcohol version of this, where you think, well, this is easier now for me to take, so I will just simply do my best to live a good life because that would please God and make Him happy with me, and therefore I'll sort of pay back a little bit of the law, but I'll just jump over the bar now that you've lowered it adequately. Far be it from either of those extreme misunderstandings to be allowed planted in the soil of this church and to spring up into the stinging thistles that they would become. Instead, let's understand it the way that God declared it, that his law stands and that the gospel is that one came in order to fulfill it perfectly as the representative of mankind making up for the one who failed in the garden. And that that perfect obedience is what is then given to us. This will form the foundation for what we will discuss this morning out of the final verses of the book of Hebrews. So, if you have been with us for this pilgrimage, you are now probably thinking this is a wonderful place to wrap it up. This is a wonderful place to end. This is where the trail comes to a conclusion, and we all go into the parking lot, hop in our cars, and drive home. Uh, This is it. But don't miss it, because it doesn't end with a whimper, but rather with a bang. And it is going to change your Christian life and experience if you understand it. I promise you that. That's a major guarantee, so I better live up to it. Fortunately, it's not me who has to live up to it. It's God's truth that will live up to it for us. So please follow along as I read the last section of Hebrews, and then I will give you a brief exposition of these verses. Beginning in verse 18, the author says this. This is the word of the Lord. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greeting. Grace be with all of you. This is God's word. 
There are two main parts in this final section of the letter to the Hebrews. The first part we will call instruction. The second part we will call benediction. Instruction and benediction. The instruction goes from verses 18 to 19 and then picks up again in 22 through 25, and the benediction is in 20 and 21. Just for the sake of ease this morning, I'm going to deal first of all with the introduction and uh, with the instructions, and then I'm going to deal with the benediction at the end. It seems fitting, given that it's a benediction. So we'll look first at the instruction and then the benediction. The instruction is quite simple. It begins in verse 18, pray for us. Now, what is not easily discernible from the English grammar is that in the original language, uh, this is an imperative, it is a command. And I want to stop right there because grammar is important. Commands are important. Uh, There are some people who scour the pages of Scripture to find all the imperatives They want to know all the commands, all the do's, because they have this inclination towards thinking that if they can just list out all the things they're supposed to do, and then make an appropriate list, and put a box beside each, and check it off accordingly, that everything will go well with them. That they will be living up to the standard. They will be playing by the rules. And the issue that I have with that is that the imperatives exist there really not to give you any source of encouragement, but to actually discourage you and to make you realize that you could never really live up to what you're being asked to do anyway in your own strength. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were, I would say, how many of you could raise your hands in affirmation of what I just said? And I would hope that every single one of you would raise your hand to say, yes, I understand what that means. I know what it's like to try to live according to the law and not be able to do it. I I know what it means to come face to face with the reality that even if I take those commands and I dumb them down into something that even I could handle, that I even fail at that. And that I am equally aware of the fact that Scripture says elsewhere that if I fail at even one point in one of these at one time, that I am guilty of the entire law and therefore come under the judgment of God. Now that is why I don't think we should rush to the imperatives and try to obey them in our own strength. Now the imperatives exist, but they exist as a way for you to guide your life by the power of the Holy Spirit out of gratitude for what God has done for you in Christ. Oh yes, they apply. Yes, they exist. Yes, we follow them. But not in any sense to build ourselves up, but rather to say, but by the grace of God, I wouldn't do these things or obey these things. You know, Once you realize that you do them out of gratitude, it takes all the risk out. Now, it hasn't been too often, but but on several of occasions, I have actually had people come up to me after the service, and they have said, Pastor, I appreciate what you had to say today, but I have to confess that I was actually distracted by something that you were doing. And I said, what is that? And they said, because I noticed at several points during the sermon, your foot was literally dangling over the edge of the stair, and I was convinced that you were not aware of it, and that you were going to come tumbling down, and perhaps in your aged condition, to your death in front of all of us. Now, first of all, I have a very good sense of my surroundings. I know exactly where the end of this stage is. I've used it many, many times. 
But there's something else. Were I to make that mistake, were I to actually fall, it's not very far. The risk isn't very much. At best, I'm going to fall down uh, and nothing will happen. At worst, I will simply embarrass myself. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe some of you will wake up. Maybe some of you will pay attention. Maybe some of you will come every week and just watch for it. (laughs) But in all seriousness, what if I were on the edge of the Empire State Building right now? Uh, What if I were at a place I was at one other time in my life? at the very edge of something called the diving board, uh, which is at uh, Half Dome. What if I were actually gazing over something that was so far down that it would absolutely guarantee my death and immediate transport into glory? I would have a very different perspective, and so would you. Uh, Allow me to just stretch out that analogy to say that's the way that you can view the commands and imperatives and law in Scripture. At the beginning, this was presented to you as something that would literally lead to your eternal death. The reason why Jesus will allow some proud people who are trying to trick him or trying to earn their salvation, he'll string them along like the lawyer who says, I obey the law, and then Jesus gives him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or the rich young ruler who says, well, I obey the law, therefore all I need is your advice on how to get eternal life. And he says, give up everything you have, sell it to the poor, and you'll have riches in heaven. And he walks away discouraged. Why? Because their idea of the law was so lofty that were they to try to obey it perfectly, it would lead to their ultimate demise. And, and Jesus wants to make it very clear to them, if you want the law, then that's what you'll get, and no one stands a chance. No one can fall from that height and survive. And so, what he does is he goes back to help them realize, no, that law, that rule, that imperative, that exists in order for you to realize that you could never do it on your own, and you need somebody who came and did it for you. And that's what Christ did, and that's the essence of the gospel, and that's the essence of that contrast, and that contrast exists through the entire letter or sermon to the Hebrews. That's been the underlying theme. And so when he says this at the end, these imperatives, these these commands, these instructions, while they are inspired, uh, they are not necessarily at the standard that we would put as terms of the law that God has given to us. However, uh, they are important. They are to be followed, but again, not as a way to somehow improve one's standing, but out of gratitude. And so he says, pray for us, literally pray continually for us. That's what the grammar would suggest. This is an ongoing request. And he says that the reason is that they are absolutely sure, persuaded, you could say, that they have a clear conscience. The conscience is good. The conscience is working. And so they desire here, you'll notice, to act honorably in all things. The prayer that you're supposed to pray for those who are sending this letter, those missionaries who are doing this work, the prayer that you are to pray is that they will continue to do what they are doing because they believe in their hearts that they are acting honorably. The phrase honorable there, it's translated elsewhere as as useful conduct or good conduct. It comes from a word that means to return or to turn over. It means, you could say in our vernacular, pray for us because we are convinced in our consciences that we are not merely spinning our wheels, 
that we're out here in ministry and we're not merely just treading water, where we're not on some kind of treadmill, that we're actually doing something meaningful and productive and useful. So keep praying that we can. Carrying on in verse 19, he says, now I urge you, and this is not an imperative, but rather a calling alongside. That's what the word means. It's in the original, to call alongside. He, he says, come close to me. I want to tell you something. Come close to me. I want to ask you something. Come right up beside me. Let me put my arm around you and let me appeal to you as a brother in Christ, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as somebody who, by God's grace, has been entrusted with your care. And so with that sort of vision in your mind, it, it's not a harsh kind of instruction. It's a loving embrace and an encouragement. And it is that they would the more earnestly or literally excessively do this praying for us in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Brothers and sisters, the, the instruction to these believers who are receiving the letter is that this faithful minister would desire that they would pray earnestly, excessively, continually, that he would be able to join them soon. It's the word we get our English word tachometer from. You know, you've got those dials in your car, and when you step on the gas, there's that one that goes up, not the speedometer, but the other one, the one that measures how many times the motor is moving around. Do you like that definition? All you mechanics are like, yeah, that was a great description there, John. Glad you put a lot of thought into that illustration. You nailed it. Revolutions per minute, I know that's what it means. That thing is spinning, spinning, spinning. Is the idea that he says, I'll come to you more quickly. Not, not sooner chronologically, like if you pray for me, God will get me there sooner than he was originally intending. But that pray for me that when I try to get to you, I get there quickly. That there's nothing interrupting me, nothing stopping me. I want to be with you. Do you sense the pastoral care here? He just says, I want to be with you. I love being with the body of Christ. I love being with you in church. It, it still, it, it mystifies me why some people don't want to be with the body of Christ, why they can find any excuse, the lamest out there, to not be in church. Not because you're going to get a star because you had perfect attendance, but because you want to be with them. God designed you. If you're a Christian, God designed you to have a magnetic drawing into the body of Christ with other believers in person, weekly. This should be a natural desire of yours, and when it's not a natural desire, you come anyway, and what you'll find is that your cold heart is warmed up by the rest through the singing, through the praying, through the preaching, through the reading of Scripture. I mean, you experience that even today. Here we are singing that song to that old folk tune. I love that song. I love the words to that, mostly because I can't really say the name of the original song. Old Lang Syne? I don't know. But you hear it on New Year's Eve, right? People are out there in Times Square. They're singing it. Maybe one day we'll come up with a Christian version of It's Up to You, New York, you know, and we'll just have a way to sing that too on Christmas Day or New Year's Day. But, but I love that song, but what it also does, is it, it, it kind of reminds you of that, that, that loving fellowship 
you see people kind of arm in arm kind of swaying a little bit as they're singing it, right? There's that genuine affection for one another that comes through in those songs. And this author is saying to the recipients, I want that affection with you. It's like that when I'm with you. I just love being in your presence. I'm not trying to find a reason not to be there. And so he says, pray that I will get there and that I'll get there quickly and I'll be with you. That's one of the instructions. Another one is down in verse 22 through 24. Same word for urge. He says here, I appeal in my translation. I appeal to you. I I come alongside you again, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. Let me give you kind of a uh, street-level translation of that. It would go like this. I appeal to you, brothers, put up with my statements of appeal. I appeal to you to put up with my statements of appeal. He, He says here at the beginning, this coming alongside, this appealing, and he says, I'm appealing to you to put up with it, to endure it. Now, all joking aside, there is a certain amount of enduring and putting up with that any congregation must exercise towards its ministers. Because you do, from time to time, hear hard truths spoken at you. Maybe you have already this morning. Maybe you've heard something that that offended you. Maybe you heard something that disturbed you. And you have to exercise a certain amount of patience and a certain amount of sticking with it in order to keep hearing that truth because you know that it's good for you, that it's from the Lord, and that hopefully the minister loves you and speaks to you from a heart of love and affection, not from trying to beat you down into conformity. But here the author is saying, I've said a lot to you. And the words here is the word logos. It's, it's the word for something that would be a statement. It would be a, um, a proof of some kind, a discussion. Not, not just words that you speak, but, but he's making a case. And he's saying, I appeal to you to put up with all of this case that I'm trying to make because it's for your exhortation. It's an appeal for you. And so we can echo that and understand it. And he says to them, I I wish to do it for, continuing in verse 22, I have written, and I have written to you briefly. It's the word apostello, we get the word epistle from. I I have written you a, a, a short epistle. Literally, I have epistled you a little. I've only given you a short letter. Now, this is 13 chapters. You might say that's the longest letter if I were to write that, that I've ever written. Well, it's not long for preachers. Uh, And if you were to read this as a manuscript of a sermon, it only takes about 40 minutes to read it. So he's saying it's a brief word. It's a brief exhortation. But but bear with me, will you please? Because I've said so much in here. Just go back in your mind over all the stuff that we've learned in the book of Hebrews. All of these truths that maybe were never clear to you before, the fact that at the very beginning we see that in the old days and in various manners, the Lord spoke through His prophets, but now it's through His Son. And then we saw the glory of the Son, how He is supreme over everything. And we saw how He is greater even than Moses, who was the hero of the Jewish people whom this is being written to. We saw three times that these warnings were given, uh, lest you prove yourself not to be a Christian, but then right away after that warning is given, the author says, but I don't think that's the case with any of you. We have seen so many warnings and so much comfort. We have seen the glory of Christ extolled. We have been reminded that our Father loves us, and because of that, He disciplines us in order to prove that He won't condemn us. And now at the end of all of this, which almost seems too hard for our minds to hold, 
the author says, just bear with me a little bit longer as I wrap up because I'm going to put a capstone on this that is going to absolutely dazzle you. He says to these brothers and sisters in verse 23, before he wraps up, before he gives this, or just preview, after the benediction, chronologically in order of the, the letter, but just before, as we're going to study it, he says, you should know, it's the word objectively know, you should, you should know, you should have this piece of, of information that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Again, it's that where we get tachometer, quickly. If he comes quickly, now that he's released, now that he's out of prison, and you remember from when we studied about prison, prison was something you rarely got out of, so he must have been liberated, perhaps miraculously, the way that Paul and, and Titus and others had been before. But he is released, he is now out of prison, and he is going to join the author of the Hebrew letter, if he can get there quickly and not interrupted by anything in his travels. And he wants them to be encouraged, because it would have been very unusual to hear that someone was out of prison. So what an encouragement, what a joy for these people. And then, finally, in this section of instruction, he says, greet. And this is also an imperative, but it's an imperative that means do this one time. Greet once all of your leaders. The, the third time they've been mentioned in this chapter. The leaders, literally the ones who step out in front. Uh, the ones who are at the, at the head. Not because they're the most important, but because they're the ones that have been entrusted with guiding. If you ever watched flocks of Canadian geese flying, they do it so in a formation, in a V. And, and that is because it's more aerodynamic. There's a bird at the front of that, at the tip, who is breaking the, the, the resistance for the rest of those birds. And so what you'll notice is that if you were to watch them for a long time, that lead bird changes from time to time. It goes from the front down to the back. You also have this in a peloton of bike racers. Now, I just did something very arrogant. Number one, I used the word peloton, for which I have absolutely no reason for using because I've never even been on one of those bikes. And secondly, I only know that because Dave Crawford told me. And he is an avid biker. But what I didn't realize is that the person who gets all the glory and all the fame and gets to wear the yellow jersey isn't the person who by himself is making that race happen. It's because he's with a team, with this peloton of other riders, and they are going in front of him, breaking the resistance so that he can remain as fresh as possible until the very end where he sprints. Brothers and sisters, the, the leaders that are being asked to be prayed for here are like those people at the front. They're the ones that are taking a lot of the resistance that's why they often grow weary. That's why they often need encouragement. That's why the Lord, I think, ministers to them in a special way, with a special grace, because though we are all targets of the evil one and the world, the flesh, and the devil, perhaps most so those leaders. And so the author says, don't only pray for those leaders and respect those leaders and, and obey those leaders and submit to those leaders, although those terms, remember, were more carefully defined for you the last time we were together but also greet them, show them that kind of affection. As well as all the saints, literally the holy ones, the sanctified ones, the ones who once and for all, when they were saved, were set apart from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And those who come from Italy send you greetings. It's likely that there were those who were with him that had come from Italy and he says they want to greet you. Why? Because it's a wider audience. The, the church wasn't just one little independent local unit. The church was the universal church. 
The confessions, the great confessions of the faith refer to the Holy Catholic Church. And that doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means the opposite. Actually, it's the universal church, all believers, the invisible church, you might say. And so he says here that all these believers from Italy, they greet you because they know that they are part of the same family of God. Grace be with you all. There's not a better blessing to ask for somebody than that grace would be with them. Now, with that, we turn to the benediction, and I must confess that this is one of the most stunning sections of the entire letter. It's not the very last words of the letter. The very last words we just covered, but they're the words right before the last words. And they really do provide the apogee, the the zenith, the climax, the summit of everything in the book, not just the argument and, and, and not just the rhetoric, but, but everything. Everything about everything gets summarized here. And so I'd ask you just to take a look at verses 20 and 21, and I don't even think I can possibly put into words the majesty of this. I don't think the human tongue is possibly able to convey what's going on here in terms of a heavenly reality, but since that's all we've got, that's what we'll go with. I need you to understand at the very beginning that God deals with his people in covenants. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Whether or not you see an actual formal covenant with Adam or not, we know from Hosea 6-7 that Adam broke the covenant that he had made with God in terms of the agreement that was expected of him not to eat of the fruit of the tree. God made a covenant with Noah, and that covenant though we say it's with Noah, was really a covenant with himself that he would not again destroy the earth by water. If you were driving in today at a certain time from a certain place, you saw a rainbow. Why was that rainbow there? It was a reminder that God will never again destroy the world by water. And that's so important for Californians when it rains. That's there for us because we got 0.3 inches and we're beginning to wonder. He says, I will never again destroy the earth by water. He'll destroy it again in another way, but not by water. That covenant that he made with Noah is a covenant with himself. He made a covenant as well, you'll remember, with Abraham, where he took the animals and he cut them in two. And before Abraham could even think to walk through and cut the covenant with God himself, he put him to sleep. And he walked through that ocean of blood on his own to show that he was going to make a covenant with Abraham, but that he was also going to uphold Abraham's side of the covenant. And as we saw last week, that it was not through his seeds, but through one seed, ultimately the seed being Christ, who would be the greater Abraham, the greater Adam, the one who would fulfill everything that God would have to ask of mankind. We know that God made a covenant with David and then with Israel and with Christ in the new covenant. And you could even say, as some theologians do, that he would make a covenant, as it were, with us, that as a response to the gospel, that when we obey him in baptism, when we remind ourselves of the covenant of gratitude we have with him at the Lord's Supper, uh, when we live lives that bring him glory and honor and try to please him and do his will by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we are also living out that agreement. But again, in the power of the Spirit, not our own. He is the one who will uphold both his judgment 
by the law and the word at Sinai, and also His grace through the word of the gospel at Zion. Both of those truths, as Hebrews has already taught us, come together. And we see here that yes, that sword of the law will be brought down upon everybody, but that the expectation will be fulfilled by Christ in the gospel. Let us first consider the statement that he makes here, and then we'll look at it in more detail. Verse 20, he says, now may the God of peace, you can stop there for a moment. We know from Romans chapter 15 and 16, as well as Philippians 4 and other places, that it is through the gospel that God brings peace. And peace, by the way, it comes from that Hebrew word shalom. It's two things. Note this down. It's two things. Number one, it is a a ceasing of hostilities, so the war is over. There's that kind of peace. Believe me, you don't want to be at war with God, and you don't want God at war with you. That war is over because of what Christ did, if you put your faith in him. But secondly, it's the peace that means the wholeness, the completeness, the, the peace that comes to a person who knows that they are secure, who they are assured in the hope they have in their Redeemer. And so he says to them in this benediction, may that God of peace, who did what? Who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That's the resurrection. That's the new covenant. Uh, That's the truth of of, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, where he now lives to make intercession for us. This is the glory of the, the resurrection and the ascension, the imputed righteousness, the fact that we are no longer under condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, that you are now a new creature, that because Christ rose from the dead and became the firstborn of many who would rise from the dead in the judgment, you know you can too. He says here he is the great shepherd of the sheep. I love that. I think there's a contrast being held out here between the Old Testament shepherd who is considered to be Moses and the New Testament shepherd who is Christ, uh, that you are no longer being shepherded uh, through the conformity to the first two uses of the law, but you are rather now being shepherded from Christ himself. And, And he's a good shepherd, as we read earlier from Psalm 23. He's a wonderful, kind, generous shepherd who brings rest to his flock, who leads them to places where they can eat and drink their fill. You see, a good shepherd is contrasted with the hirelings in books like Ezekiel and other places where when things get difficult, they flee for their lives. But Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'll lay down my life for the sheep. You see, shepherds really existed to stay up at night and watch over sheep because sheep were vulnerable. One of the things that would happen is during the middle of the night, sheep would be vulnerable to wolves And wolves, as you know, don't travel alone. So you can imagine a shepherd standing there outside the pen with his staff in hand, warding off the attack of multiple wolves who are surrounding him, hungry wolves who would love to be able to get past him and tear apart the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. The shepherd protects the sheep from wolves. This great shepherd of ours, the Lord Jesus Christ, stands between us and the great wolf who would devour your soul, that is sin and death and hell, and he says, I've already paid for these sheep, they belong to me. When he says, I am the door, what he means is that I lie down there at the threshold of the pen, which means no one can get out without walking over me, and no one can get in without walking over me, and no one walks over me. 
He is the great shepherd who is lifted up here and extolled and glorified. And so the author wants us to see that all of our hope is in him. But there's more than this. The shepherd didn't just say he will lay down his life for us. He did. Because notice it. It is all this benediction by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now this is where we need to pause for a moment because there's so much here. You see, this blood This blood is what fulfills the law's demands. When Christ died on the cross, he died as somebody under the curse, the curse of the law. He died because he had to die because cursed lawbreakers were being redeemed. You can't redeem somebody without paying what they owe. Why did Jesus die? He died because of us because of what we did. He didn't die because that would be more dramatic. He died because he set himself under the very law that he established. And because sinners have to die, he died. So his blood fulfilled that command. His blood, though, more than that, didn't just fulfill the demand, it also sealed the promise of redemption because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The sin was fully paid for and sealed by his blood. He completely atoned for your sin. It brings ultimate glory to God. There is nothing for you to do in fulfilling the law's demands, nothing for you to do in sealing your redemption, nothing for you to do in paying the price of your sin, nothing for you to do in bringing glory to God that hasn't been done by Christ. That is what makes him the great shepherd. That is what causes us to glorify him. And all of this was done, I might add, through the eternal covenant, through yet another covenant that God made with us. But the question is, did God make it with us? It's easy to say that, but is that really true? Well, hold on to that question for a moment. I will intend to answer it. But before I do that, I want you to notice that this eternal covenant is eternal. And you might say that sounds redundant, John. Well, let me explain why it's important. The word eternal here is used to describe it as something that is everlasting, but also something that has always been. You see, before the foundation of the world, as the Scripture says, God chose us to be in Christ. God set his electing love upon some to be in Christ. And so before anything else happened, if you go back to Genesis and you look at the creation account and you reverse it, you know, before woman, before man, before mammals, before birds, before lakes and rivers and oceans and land masses, before the earth, before the moon, before stars, before heaven and earth, before light, there was God and God alone. This covenant goes back to before light. (laughs) Isn't it awesome that everything in redemptive history begins and ends with light? Let there be light at the very beginning, and then at the very end in the New Jerusalem there is no temple because Christ fills the temple and his light is the light that fills everything and means there is never darkness. But before that light there was an inter-Trinitarian agreement 
And this covenant that was made is a covenant that is perfect because God is the builder of it. It is perpetual because God doesn't change and it is permanent because we will have it forever. Number one, it is perfect. He does it all. You and I don't add anything. Brothers and sisters, relieve yourself of the notion that somehow you contribute anything to your salvation, even your free will. You don't choose him. He chose you. And I, as a pastor, appeal to you. Listen to that truth. Believe that. Embrace it. I appeal to you deeply and passionately and personally that if you know people who are trapped in theological systems that teach that somehow it's their choice, that it depends on them, appeal to them in love and mercy and patience to be rescued from that heresy. If you contributed one ounce to your salvation, you would ruin the entire thing. Yesterday I was going for a walk down along Pacific Street along the ocean and I paused for a moment outside the beach house that was being constructed there and I took careful note of how things were being built inside of that home and I was just noticing how everything was coming together and how every piece of it was clearly set aside to be done a certain way by, by an architect and by a master builder. And I thought to myself, if you were to hand me any piece of that construction and say, John, you go ahead and use your free will and you just, you work on this part of the house and do whatever you want to do, whatever you think is right, I guarantee you that the entire structure would be compromised. I would invariably do the wrong thing. I, I can't contribute anything. The master craftsman has to do it all. He did it all. But not only is it perfect, but it is also perpetual, meaning it's not going to change because God says, I don't change. When I have set my love on you before the foundation of the world in this eternal covenant that was made within the Godhead, it's not going to change because of anything you do. You can't resist my will. You can't change my plan because I ordained it before the foundation of the world. And finally, and perhaps most encouraging for us today, is you have to remember that it's permanent. I mean, sometimes we think about salvation, and we think of all the good things that come to us in life now, but remember, it's going to be forever. That's why I love when the Bible says, forever and ever. You ever notice that? You ever wonder why it says that? Like, isn't forever enough? Right? Forever. That sounds kind of permanent. That sounds like it's not going to change. But it's like they add and ever just to make sure there's no confusion. Isn't it wonderful to know that as great as it is to live as a believer and to know the power of the Spirit in your life and to see how God conforms you into His holiness over time and, and to enjoy, enjoy his, his law because out of gratitude you can obey and confess your sin and, and enjoy a personal relationship with Him to the Spirit, as great as all that is, isn't it even greater to consider that in the new heavens and the new earth He will dwell with us in bodily form, in person, forever in glory, and it will never, ever, 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 ever end. <gasps> That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, I mean, we, we have the blessing, and I sincerely mean this, of living in a part of the world which you must confess is at times stunningly beautiful, to where you're driving along and you actually become a hazard to other people on the road because you are absolutely distracted by the splendor and the beauty and the glory of your surroundings. The beautiful sunshine, the beautiful ocean, 
the beautiful everything that we get to experience here. Well, I magnify that infinite upon infinite when you think about the new heavens and the new earth. This is going to look like the worst slum in the world compared to what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like, and it's going to be permanent. It's never going to change. And that's what it means to have an eternal covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to talk about this covenant because it's extremely important. I want you to notice the parties, the offer, the terms, and the motive. The parties involved in this offer, the terms, and the motive, the parties. I said to you earlier, is this made with us or not? And maybe some of you said, well, yeah, it's made with us. But no, it's not really because the blood of the eternal covenant is a covenant that was made before the foundation of the world. It was an inter-Trinitarian covenant. It was a covenant that God made with God. It was a covenant that God made with God. And, and if you were to search the scriptures for the theology of this, you can see it laid out like this in terms of the offer It is the Father out of love who swears by his own great name, because there's nothing higher to swear by than by the name of God himself, to cleanse, to call, to forgive, to redeem, and to adopt sons and daughters of Adam who have fallen. He will give them perfect covenant-keeping righteousness through the merits of Christ, his beloved Son, who stood in their place to satisfy his wrath. Now, as for the Holy Spirit... Still on the side of the equation of the covenant, the Holy Spirit, in agreement with the Father, will regenerate the elect, will open their eyes to their need for a Savior. He gives them the faith to believe in the sacrifice of Christ. He grows them in personal holiness and assurance, and then He keeps them in the love of God for the rest of their time on earth. You see, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit intimately connected in this part of the covenant, perhaps this side, you could say, of this bilateral covenant. They are the ones who do the work in us. They are the ones who receive all of the glory. They are the ones who prove that it is not your free will that either causes you to accept Christ or to remain committed to Him, but it is all of Him And the works that are required for this redemption are fulfilled by the second Adam. As for the Son, on the other side of the equation, the Son then becomes man, clothing himself in the cursed flesh of Adam. He came as as a man, but Philippians 2 says, not, not just as a man, but he came looking like a man, as a man, and thought of as nothing more than a man. He came as a cursed man. He came in cursed flesh, in a broken body, one that got tired and sick and hungry, one that could die. That's the cursed body, and he took it on to live out perfectly in a cursed body the obedience that Adam couldn't live out perfectly in an innocent body. Shocking, isn't it? But he did that for every single day of his incarnate life on earth. And therefore, he roams the earth in sorrow and poverty and temptation, but he still fulfills the law perfectly. And then he pays the debt in full for all those the Father has chosen. And he honors the law of God. He doesn't reject it. He comes to fulfill it. He says, not one jot or tittle will pass away. He satisfies the justice of God, bears the curse, the wrath, the death, and then rises and he ascends to the glory of heaven to intercede for and to protect and to preserve and to keep every last one of his sheep by the power of his own blood. That's the nature of the offer. 
the terms. This covenant benefits the few that were chosen before the foundation of the world. As much as one might wrestle in their minds with that doctrine, as much as one might think there is somehow an appeal to the false teaching of Arminian theology, I must remind you that as difficult as the doctrine is to apprehend and to comprehend, it cannot be rejected simply because of that, since Scripture teaches it so clearly. Brothers and sisters, don't allow yourself to be led astray by a theological system that would rob you of the glory of this Reformed theology. We are a covenant people. We serve a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And to somehow insert ourselves into the process, to allow ourselves to think that we can somehow claim any involvement to either accentuate it or reject it, robs Him of His glory and is something for which one will, must, will give an account. The reality is the vast multitudes of people who have never heard the good news or reject it over and over again are clearly not those to whom the benefit of this covenant is applied. It applies to the elect. Jesus himself prays for his own that the Father gave him. He says, I don't pray for the world. I pray for my own. I didn't come to die for the world. I came to die for my own. Not one of my sheep will be lost, the ones that you gave me. It's a particular atonement, we would say, in theology, if you're familiar with the term. They alone will feast with him in glory when this covenant of grace and redemption is put on display in the new creation. That's where you find your rest. So those are the participants and, and the offer and the terms. And what's the motive? Well, I think it's simply this. Since the covenant was made before creation, I can tell you this. The motive is not anyone's actions. God did not fast forward the movie and then choose some of us because he knew ahead of time that we would choose him. That cannot be the motive for this covenant. Left to ourselves, none of us would choose him. Left to ourselves, we would reject him. Left to ourselves, we hate the doctrine of salvation. Because the doctrine of salvation teaches that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And we are all by nature's idolaters and religious people, even the atheists. He chose us. And this idea that we would somehow choose him, part of that heresy of Arminian doctrine, must be rejected. No. He did it based on his own absolute sovereign choice to do what would bring him the most glory. It was by grace and grace alone that you were chosen. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and it is a picture of his love. God loved the world in this particular way, that he sent his own son, that whoever puts their faith in him would receive everlasting life. And so, that is the eternal covenant it is by the blood of the great shepherd that it is secured. It is that shepherd who, though put to death, was raised to life again and ascended. It is that one who is constantly crying out, peace, peace, to those who belong to him. And it is that one, beloved, who will help you to obey God and to please him. Look at verse 21. 
We began this sermon by talking about the law and how strange it might be that some of us would say that the law is a good thing or even that you should love it. (laughs) Well, here's why. The very last word I want to give to you from the book of Hebrews is a word that reminds you that God does have expectations of you. We are not antinomian, the theological term for those who have cast aside the law. We do not preach a gospel that says, then therefore go live any way you want. Be whoever you are and God will just accept you as you are. No, we do preach that there is an expectation that he has for his people, that they will be set apart, that they will live out the holy lives secured for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's through that power that you can do it. And verse 21 explains that to us in vivid detail. He says that in the benediction, may the God of peace who's in all this for you in Christ do what? Equip you with everything good. (laughs) I love that. Every good thing. Ephesians 2 says, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He did this not on account of anything that you did. You didn't earn it. You didn't set yourself apart, but he did it and then saved you that you might do good works that he had foreordained you would do before the foundation of the world. There's an outcome. Yes, you do good works. Yes, you are set apart by your works. That's why James does not contradict Romans. James says faith without works is dead. Everybody needs works. Thankfully, though, the works are the works that are done by Christ and accomplished by Christ. And the works that prove that we have lived according to the law are the works that were done by him. But notice here, you are equipped for every good thing that you may do his will. That's the first thing. Number one, that you might do his will. His will is not hidden. His will is revealed. You can go to several passages of Scripture where you can see very clearly what the will of God is. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 4. It is the will of God. And yes, those are imperatives. Yes, they are instructions. Yes, they are do's and don'ts. But not to strap on you like a burden, but to rather remind you that as a peculiar people set apart in a cursed world, destined to suffer like your Savior, you can do it in joy and gratitude through the power of the Spirit He gives you. So first of all, that you would do His will. And secondly, the benediction continues, working in us. I don't need to reiterate this. I've said it so many times already this morning, but it's the same principle. It's him working in us. It's him doing the work that which is pleasing in his sight. So you see here that you do what is his will and you do what is pleasing in his sight. That's how you can love the law. (laughs) You love the law because, because you want to do his will and you want to do what's pleasing in his sight, don't you? I mean, I mean, who, when they really begin to understand in some little way the magnitude of the sacrifice that Christ has made for us, would respond by saying to that kind of love, I don't need you, I don't care what you think, and it doesn't bother me one bit if what I do offends you. No one who is genuinely regenerated and born again thinks that way. No one. There is a desire out of gratitude for what he has done for us. I love the parable of the woman 
who comes to Jesus and anoints his feet to the shock of the self-righteous people around her. And Jesus, in a soul-shredding rebuke, says, I arrived and you didn't kiss me. You gave me nothing for my feet. She has come and done everything for me because she knows that she was a sinner and she has been forgiven much. But you give me nothing because you don't think you're that bad. May we be a church filled with people who are so aware of the sinners that they are and the Savior that he is. Amen? Because it is only, notice it, through Jesus Christ that any of this is possible. And now, it is to him, (laughs) to the God of peace, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. (laughs) And the author to the Hebrews and the recipients and us down to this very day all together say the very last word in unison, amen. Our Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for inspiring it and giving it to us. I appeal to you by the mercies of Christ that if there is anyone here who is unsure at this point what to do with the weight of this revelation, that they would not be persuaded that there's some kind of sinner's prayer or an invitation to walk an aisle or raise a hand. We don't ask them to do anything but to acknowledge to you that they are sinners, that they trust that Christ has died for them, that they put their full faith and confidence in the merit of his death and sacrifice and promise that thick or thin, moving forward, no matter what it is that they encounter as a consequence of bearing his name, that they will have no other hope but him. May this be true of everyone the sound of my voice. Amen.